1 Timothy 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, Remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And as the grass withers and the flower fades, God's word alone endures forever. Always, and it's probably one of the most difficult things when you begin to preach from God's Word a new series and from a new portion of Scripture, a new letter like we are doing with First Timothy. Uh, there's always that sermon that begins to introduce it and explain what is contained within the letter and uh, dealing with some of the more, uh, I wouldn't say awkward, but more passed over verses of Scripture. I'm sure many of you, when it comes to reading a lot of Paul's letters and seeing how he introduces himself and then speaks about who it's been written to and gives that salutation, those are things that we very quickly skip over and think of as a bit redundant to the fuller body. But it is part of the introduction uh, to all that Paul is going to say. And so there's some of that reflected even in these first two verses. And in beginning this series on First Timothy, why we are turning to it, it seemed good to me uh, to search out the high place and the importance that the church is to have in our life as Christians. As we finished with James and understanding that James was writing a letter to the scattered brethren, uh, I wanted in thinking, where do we go from here? I wanted to take all who have been scattered and now draw them together to understand what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. And it seemed good to do this even more so because a lot of people... A lot of Christians, let me stress that, not just people in general, not just godless people, but Christians have lost the importance not only of the church in their life, 
but also the importance of their life in the church. It's both. And when we speak about belonging to the church, it's not just so that the church can increase its roles and have another name added to its list. It's understanding that your life is important in the church as much as the church is important in your life. And over the next several months, we're going to explore both 1 Timothy and Titus in respect of that thought. And it also seemed good, especially as COVID is lingering. Don't you ever think of that uh, as something that is, is wearing us down? Uh, just as I said that, I couldn't help but think that, that that was the one thing that entrapped Lot's uh, whole family in Sodom. When the warning of the destruction that God was bringing upon Sodom and Gomorrah and all of the cities of the plains, you read that little line, and Lot lingered. And lingering's not good, is it? <laughs> There's times in which we linger in those places where we realize, uh, I have been here just a little bit too long. Uh, I need to go. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's not as uh, troubling if we just take those few extra minutes to linger at the door of someone we're visiting. Uh, we know how quickly time escapes us, but when we linger where temptation and sin dwell, when we linger in those places that draw us away from the very things that we are called to pursue, that's where it becomes dangerous. And I think there's something to be said about that when we consider the lingering nature of COVID, all the restrictions that have been put in place by it, and, and the growing, and I dare to say, the disturbing trend of many Christians becoming comfortable with online church. With online services. I'll get my church by watching you on my computer. That many are losing a real, rich, important sense, not only of the church in their life, but their life in the church. Lingering is never good that way. The need that professing Christians have for the church has, and I say this in, in response to many things that I'm reading from other pastors and other situations, professing Christ, the need professing Christians have for the church has diminished. There are some Christians who have cast off belonging to a church altogether. And, and, and the excuses range uh, considerably. Uh, I was reminded this past week that many times excuses become thinly veiled lies to accommodate our perspective. <laughs> and that's, that's something that I see in excuses for Christians who have cast off the church. You hear it, well, I, I wasn't able to find a good church. Well, I like to challenge people, what do you mean by good? <laughs> let's, let's, you know, flesh this out a bit. Or you hear them saying, church just isn't meeting my needs. And, and, and it becomes 
all about the the individual and the ego. Or and and this is true too. Some Christians have had a really bad experience with church fellowship and with church leaders. And there are sins that happen and rise in those circumstances that really make going to church a hard thing for people to do. I recognize that. It's not all just with the Christian. The church herself hasn't always been faithful in what she's called to be. But then there are those erroneous ideas of what constitutes, quote-unquote, the church. And just as we are seeing during this time of COVID a growing social anarchy in the nations and in the cities, there is a growing Christian anarchy in respect of the church. And these things need to be guarded. And I want to say, my dear people, that to deny your need of the church, to deny your place in the church, whether by your actions in not being visibly part of the life and the worship of a congregation, or by explicit words that state that. To deny your need of the church is to deny Jesus Christ and the great salvation that He has accomplished. Paul declares that in the next letter, 2 Timothy, that the Lord, the Lord knows those who are His. And what has He done to those whom He has redeemed? You read the book of Acts and you cannot help but see that Christ's purpose was to what? Build His church. And what's a running theme in the book of Acts? To all who are being saved, they were added to the church. You cannot profess faith in Christ and be out of His church. It's a contradiction. Because He is the one in saving you, has brought you to be part of His body, (laughs) of which He is what? King and Head. And as challenging as belonging to a church can be at times, and it can be, And as boring as church may seem at times, and it can be. (laughs) And as awkward and as difficult of being part of a church or finding a good church, one that you perceive is wanting to be faithful to God's Word, as hard as that can be, to not belong to the church is far worse. It is to step outside of that place where Christ has set the ways and means, what we call the keys of the kingdom, to enable you to grow up in sincerity of the faith and live for His glory. 
He declares that Himself in His Word. So understand that importance. And this is why we turn to these letters to Timothy and to Titus. Because these letters express to us what the church is and what belonging to the church is all about. There are, if you in 1 Timothy in particular, there are three major threads that run through this letter. They in fact run through all three of these letters. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And if you were to sit and read these three letters all together, you would get through them within 40 minutes. They're that easy to read. But they're full of so much that if you just sat and read it for 30 minutes or 40 minutes and were done with it, you would miss what it contains. These letters contain some of the most glorious and powerful and clear doxologies and confessions of Christ and the Christian faith. If you have your Bibles, it's not written in those sheets, but if you have your Bibles, you go just a little further in 1 Timothy to verse 17 and listen to this doxology. It's a praise to God. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor, glory forever and ever. Amen. And you'll see Paul does that again when you go to 1 Timothy 3 verse 16. 1 Timothy 6 verses 15 and 16. It's like as Paul is writing to Timothy, he suddenly explodes and looks to God and glorifies Him in praise. How many of you have ever done that in reading Scripture? When you get so overwhelmed by the greatness of what God has done, that you just look up and you say, Oh God, praise praise your name. And, and Paul, you see this, he doesn't do it often in his other letters, but he does it often in these three short letters. And I think it has to do something with the knowledge of his own past. I was saying this, and perhaps I've said it to some of you and you've heard it before, but it bears again within this, this series. That Paul, as he looked at his own life of sanctification and of growing more and more in the knowledge of who God is and of who Jesus Christ is and of the glory of the Gospel of God, you see a progression in his thought in the letters that he writes where early on, Galatians being one of his first letters, and he writes there in Galatians 1, how he considered himself to be the least of the apostles. And we account him to be what? Perhaps the greatest of them. And and we dare to say that he wrote, it seems, uh, with all of his letters, at least the most number of books of the New Testament. And yet a little further on, and, and you'll see this, Coming into 1 Timothy, as he has matured in his knowledge of Christ and the Gospel, and in the ministry that God laid on him, he says in verse 15, he says, uh, sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that's where it is. In 1 Corinthians 15, when he considers himself in light of all this, uh, of all the believers, he says, I'm the least of all of the saints. That he would look at us 
And He would consider us of greater worth and glory to God than Himself. And then as he writes 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, these are the last letters that he wrote. He looks at himself again, and you see it in 1 Timothy 1.15. And what does he say about himself? <laughs> when I put myself in line with other sinners, I'm the chief. And we know Paul isn't doing this with some sort of, of if you will, uh, a hidden pride. He's not doing this out of ego. He's reflecting on who he is before God and just saying, I am the least worthy of all. And he unfolds that for us in a lot of his letters when he looks at his own life and considers what he was before he was converted. What was he? He says it a few times. I was a persecutor of the church. I went against not just Christ, I went against His church with a zeal and a vigor like no one else. And God came down and plucked me out of that. He was overwhelmed with grace. And I think as he writes, and this is speculation of course, but I think you can gain it when you write this, that one of the things that probably bothered him most was when not the world, but God's own people, Christians, persecute the church. I, I, I do think that. Because he often says things, and you say, well, why, why do we need to be told not to lie <laughs> or give any reason for people to blaspheme God. Because we're the church. (laughs) And, And that's one of the major threads that runs through these letters, is what is the church? Church structure. These letters help us understand not just who we are as Christians, but what it is to be in the church and what the church is, to understand who qualifies to be elders and deacons in the church. Paul even says here in 1 Timothy 3, verse 15, he says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. That's why you need to know this. How are you to live your life in the church? And he goes on to say, the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of what? Of truth. And when we see that, when we understand that major thread, church and its structure, we understand that the church is not We need to know this. It is not a democratic society that is ruled by simple majority. We're not a social group that gets together and everybody raises their hands and the majority gets what they want. Not at all. Far from it. We're not a society that is governed by cultural traditions and perspectives. And you're going to find that challenging when we get to chapter 2. 
Why can't women be elders? Because we're not governed by society's traditions. We are governed by the Word of God. Christ Himself. And there's reason and purpose for everything concerning the church. The church is distinct from this world. Did Jesus not say that in giving the good confession to Pilate? 1 Timothy 6, 13 and onward. That my kingdom is not of this world. The church is not of this world. We are a household of faith. A household of faith. And in understanding that, we are the body of Christ. He is the King and Head. When we understand that, then we begin to understand, again, the Christian rhetoric that goes around today. The church is not your family gathered in your living room. You may belong to a church and have your family worship and those things are purposefully important. But that's not, quote-unquote, the church. The church are not three saints talking about spiritual things while they're driving in the car or on a hike. That can be very edifying to your soul. It is edifying. I know I find myself edified when we can resolve all of the problems of the church on our way down to a Banner of Truth conference and then get out of the car and realize we're right back where we started. Because we're we're not the church in that car. Fellow believers and saints experiencing a, a measure of the blessing of the presence of God, which is more than we would experience if we were just in our closet. But that's still not the church. The church, as we heard from Psalm 80, 89, verse 7, the church is the assembly of the called out ones. The church is the assembly of those whom the Lord Jesus has redeemed from this world. And the church then becomes the gathering of those redeemed of the Lord who are now ruled by the authority of His divine Word. Together. Now, second major theme, and I know I spent a lot of time there, but it's important to understand that as we're going to constantly see. The second major theme is the, the need of sound doctrine. Again, the church is the pillar and the ground of truth. That Jesus Christ uh, is the one who has established His church being the chief cornerstone of it. Being the living and true Word who has given His life in ransom for our sins and, and establishing the principle upon which we are united to the church through His, His Gospel, through the offering of Himself for our sins through His resurrection from the dead. He has become the chief cornerstone with the Gospel. That He has now appointed the church to be the pillar. That is, to be that post that is used to lift up high what needs to be seen by all people. 
He's appointed the church to be that pillar of his gospel. And as well to be the ground of truth. That is, that word ground, it's a word that means to be the buttress, the support that, that, that we understand. If we want to know where truth is about God, where do we go? Yes, to His Word. But you know, a lot of the things that you read in the Bible are hard to understand. Where do we go to understand? And it's not to say that the church has the end of it all in understanding all things, but it is supporting It is supporting the truth of God. And we need sound doctrine. Even in Paul's day, even here in 1 Timothy 1, we read how other doctrine was being taught, verse 3, which ended up, as you read on, shipwrecking the faith of some. There is a need for sound doctrine. The Christian faith is not a free-for-all that you can go about believing whatever you feel is right in your own heart concerning God and concerning who you are before Him. (laughs) That's utter nonsense. God has given us truth. And the sound doctrine that we need is found and contained in His Word. And is purpose to be taught by his church. And as well, the third saying, the, the third theme. So we have what is the church sound doctrine and the need of it. But there are also in these letters five faithful sayings. Five times Paul says, This is a faithful saying. Three of them are found in 1 Timothy. But he, also, he, he does this because another important aspect of the Christian faith and of your life in his church is holding fast to that good confession. What are some of the great essentials of the Christian faith that we need to hold before this world? Well, these letters tell us these things. So there's a lot here. And... And in that, it will be a journey of a few of a few months. And I want to first of all just focus on verses one and two, and for the brief time we have remaining, look at the author and the recipient. Because this this ought to seem strange to us. Why is it that a letter to Timothy and a letter to Titus find themselves as holy, inspired, inerrant word of God that is necessary for the church. You know, Paul probably wrote other letters to other people, but they're not here. Why these three? He, he also wrote to Philemon as well. But Well, you look at the opening two verses of this letter. These opening words, they're often called what we would say a salutation. You need to see them as Holy Spirit inspired. Just as we would look at the rest of the letter from verse 3 onward, we would look at them and we would say, this is God's Word. Well, these first two verses are as well. Because Paul here is expressing a powerful authority that we often underappreciate. 
If this was just a, a letter to a dear friend, why this authoritative greeting? Does Timothy need to know that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God? Timothy spent years traveling with Paul. (laughs) He knew all of that already. Did he have to be reminded of who he was in relation to, to, to Paul? I'm stressing this again so that you understand by doing this what Paul is saying is that, Timothy, this isn't just a letter to you. This is a letter to the church. The contents of this letter are not just a a mild conversation between an apostle and one of his disciples. And that's important because that's often used in the argument when you come to chapter 2 about why women are not afforded a place of holding office in the church. And you think on that. How many people have read that and said, well, Paul was just dealing with the culture in Ephesus and and was just encouraging Timothy just to handle the situation in this way. And diminishing a point about the structure and office bearers in the church. Well, we need to bring him right back to these first two verses and say, Paul was speaking as one ordained and commanded by God and the Lord Jesus Christ to give these words to the church. And as hard as it is for us to embrace some of these things, particularly in a culture that wants to be egalitarian, it's it's challenging. But I think Paul is also giving us further instruction. We we know Paul is an apostle. We know Paul's conversion and calling by Christ to be an apostle. You can read it in Acts chapter 9. And yet, as Paul is commending Timothy to the church in Ephesus to labor and remain there to deal with issues that are rising up in that church... He wants Timothy to understand and he wants the church to understand. What is it that enables Timothy to carry on in an authoritative position that we often just have, have held in view of the apostles? Timothy is not acclaimed an apostle as Paul was, as Peter, as James, as John, as Matthew, and etc., 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 Paul is showing us something about the nature of the church that we carry on with the offices that Christ Himself has given to the church. And we carry on in the authority, if I can use this expression, of lesser men than the apostles. We no longer need an apostle to lead the church. They have with their Uh, words with the unction of the Holy Spirit, with their writings, with the command of God and of Christ Himself. They have given us the teachings of our Lord. And now it is the men like Timothy who carry on teaching those truths for the church in every generation. Look what Paul stresses what he and Timothy share. 
Do you notice in verses 1 and 2 how four times he says, he says this uh, 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 plural, uh, plural first person, our. God our Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ our hope. God our Father, Jesus Christ our Lord. There's something very encouraging here for Timothy and for the church to grasp. Paul, he was an apostle. He had been gifted with special callings and particular graces to establish the foundation of the church. But Paul's office was not a continuing office. The ongoing care of the church and the ongoing care that you, dear Christians, that you need in your life would be given to you by men like Timothy who share with the apostles the knowledge of who God is, of who Christ is, and of our salvation and our hope that we have together. By the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. Here is how the church will carry on. And you will know those whom God has entrusted you to. You will know those who are overseers, ruling and teaching elders, who are given to you to guide and direct you in your life. They will be known as ones who glorify God foremost. And it's interesting how Paul says that. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior. He's referencing the Father here. Isn't it interesting? He doesn't call Jesus Christ our Savior. No, We'll get to it in a moment, but he calls Jesus Christ what? Our hope. (laughs) Here he says, the Father is our Savior. The Father is the one who has prepared your salvation in Christ. And understanding what it means to be the called out ones of the church. Understanding as we sang and read in several portions of Scripture already. That we are chosen. We are elect. That we who believe, believe not because we have chosen Him but because the Father has chosen us. And my friends, that has to be and needs to be the most humbling thing that you can consider before God. He, the Heavenly Father, is the source of our salvation. What did Paul say about the love of God back in Romans Romans chapter 5? When we were still without strength, in due time, Christ, what, died for the ungodly. God, the Father, He demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, (laughs) when we were enemies, God reconciled us to Himself through the death of His Son. Do you capture that? It's not that we love God. It is John would say in 1 John 4, 
God first loved us. And my friends, when did God begin loving you? Was it after you decided to follow Him? No. Before the world was. This is the greatness of God. Before the world was. Before we even believed. God loved us. God prepared His Son to be the sacrificial Lamb for the penalty of all our sins. Isn't that what John the baptizer proclaimed when he revealed Christ to Israel? He said, Behold the Lamb of God. Who was it that made the offering for your sins? Was it you? Not at all. It was God who called upon His Son to come and make the offering. God who prepared His Son to take up this role in delivering us from our sins. And in that eternal and undeserved and amazing and unearned love, God sent His Son into this world that hated Him, that was evil, to save ungodly, sinful enemies like us. Isn't that amazing? And you know, true men of God, they don't glorify themselves. They glorify the God who has loved them. Jesus Christ, our hope, there again is, is some incredible thoughts. Because here he's expressing the only way that we have reconciliation with God. The only means that we can look upon God and call Him Father. The only way that we are able to enter the Father's presence without condemnation is because Jesus Christ is our hope. It's because Jesus Christ died to propitiate our sins. That is, He died to pay the penalty they deserved. He died to take all of God's judgment against us, all the condemnation that we deserved. He propitiated our sins by enduring it all and removing it from us. And my friends, when you believe in Christ, you possess a living hope and a surety of salvation that can never be lost. You know, true men of God, they glorify this Christ. He's the one who is lifted up in your midst. And by saying this and, and, and saying our Savior, our hope, our Father, our Lord... Timothy is being commended to the church as one who is able now to to minister to them in the same way Paul would have. Timothy is a true son in the faith. And we probably don't grasp how important that is, but what would it be if you were the church in the first century and you had 12 apostles Well, sorry, at this time there would have been 11. James has been martyred. 
And what would it be if you had 11 apostles who were performing all of these miracles and coming with an authority from God to tell you and explain to you everything you needed to know and knowing that they were men themselves who were getting older or by threat were going to die very soon and you as a church are sitting there and saying, what are we going to do when these men die? Let me ask you this. If I were to die tomorrow, and I don't wish for it, what would happen to hope? And how many of you would say, well, there goes that church? <laughs> no. Because the church is not built upon a man like me. Christ is king and head. Christ is its Lord. And He has ensured that the church that continues will have two sons in the faith to labor and minister and glorify God and exalt Christ in their midst. It's like Paul saying, I can send no one better to you than Timothy, a true son in the faith. And understand that after Timothy, there will be another man who will be able to rise up and and continue on in this labor of exalting God and Christ in your midst. Think about it in Ephesians 4. The very church Timothy is going to, Paul wrote to them to to tell them about how Christ would care for them in raising up, in gifting, and calling forth men to fill the office of pastor and teacher to care for their souls. Listen to what he says. Why do you need pastors and teachers? Christ Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And there's an understanding that that some of those offices are being uh, removed from the necessity of the church as they become established. The pastors and teachers remain for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for edifying the body of Christ so that we can grow and be edified in love. It's for the sake of the church that God has done this. And Paul writes with that authority that we may know even today that these words that he has written, that the structure, the ordering of the church, and the continuing labor of the church, and our our life in the church, it continues on and on in every generation. Think on this. Think on this in your own heart. What does it mean for you to belong to the church? Think on this in your own heart. What does it mean for the church to have you as one of her members? These are the weighty things that are before us. And by the grace of God, may we know them. Let us pray.